Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like frogs frailty and parrots oh i have no idea who came up with those they all sound excellent i think we should do frailty frail- is a is a actual genius one so we should yes, definitely we should do definitely frailty. do frailty or, i think it's a wonderful wonderful idea it is a wonderful idea i, I also like the idea of parrots i have no idea yep. how i would even attempt a history of parrots or we could do arms alarms and qualms Palms, psalms, and balms. I don't know how we would do any of those either. However, for the arms, moment, it's good. we haven't done bits of the body. Arms, legs. Uh, it's a really good idea. So yes. we could do. It's also a bit of frailty. We'll do frailty and arms. Oh, lovely. And feet. <laughs> yeah. Feet. Yeah. Foreheads. Like We've done footsteps. Anyway, Foreheads. Let's crack wrists. on. Come on. Yes, of course. <laughs> we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining very carefully indeed how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of bears is not just simply all about teddy bears, Paddington, Winnie the Pooh or Rupert Bear. No, it's in fact all about attacks and how to avoid them. It's about keeping bears as pets. It's also about accidents and bear baiting in Shakespearean England. And it's about the history of travel who knew Mm. or who knew that the history of mumbling yes it does have a history and one that takes us back to the very basic concepts of histories of the unexpected which is the historical equivalent of rambling around the past like a bull in a historical china shop mumbling is in fact all about historical definitions and talking with your mouthful it's about 90s rap phenomena mumble rap it's about linguistic compression trips and the history of colour. It's also about Rocky Balboa and Marlon Brando's Don Corleone in The Godfather. It's also about speaking in tongues and the great vowel shift and mass migrations. Who knew so much could be wrapped up in the history of mumbling? (laughs) Uh, Let me tell you of my uh, fellow presenter, if history was the North Sea and the facts of history were cod... This man would be solely responsible for the overfishing of fishy facts for his food. So few remaining unknown historical facts would there be after his diligent career in the archives. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Uh, James. Hello, hello. hello. And you may well be wondering, who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode? Well, let's just say that if he were a fish-related historian, he'd only be the J.R. Hartley of 
the historical world. So mythical are his expert powers. What the man doesn't know about historical matters, Piscine, is not worth knowing. No siree, Bob. The man could hook a fly, whiplash his rod, send his line whirring into the bubbling streams of the River Tin, and with one deft flick of his wrist, he'd land a silvery pink salmon, as if it were a historical fact landed in his historical net. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Good Lord. Uh, there we are. Hello. I was um, rambling all over the place there. It was very good. From J.R. Hartley to um, fly fisher. Yeah. I imagine you are a fly fisher. I, I am, actually. It is something I've taken up. And um, you suggested doing fish, and I was delighted to uh, tackle the question of fish. I might actually go fishing later today. Hmm. Um, it is something I've taken up recently, and uh, I adore it with all of my heart. Um, I'm not the actual act of fly, of fly tying. I'm going to talk about later. Um, that's a bit too much for me, but I do quite like standing by rivers. Uh, not catching things is what I tend to do most of. Haven't you caught a fish in your hands? Uh, no, no, like, like fish, t- fish tickling. <laughs> no, I haven't. Um, but there is a photograph on my Instagram which looks as if I've done that. Ah. Uh, what, what, what I've actually done is dr- I've caught quite a big trout and uh, in the River X up by Tiverton. And um, the chap who I was with took a photo of me a split second after the fish leapt out of my hands. But it looks like it's leaping into my hands. <laughs> So it was just a cunning piece of a, of, of of deception there, James. Um, Excellent. It's, right. it's, a, it's, it's a standard poaching technique to lie <laughs> with your hands in the water and wait until a fish sort of stops near you, and then you tickle it under its little sort of belly, and then it jumps out. Wow. Fish, fish that, tickling. Yeah, I wonder how long that would actually take. I Quite think a long that time. wouldn't. You get I very, very, would, yes. very cold. You would hear cold and soggy arms. I imagine um, we are doing the history of fish, uh, James. Where did you start with this? Where did I start? I started all over the place. I started on your Instagram feed, actually, uh, which was you <laughs> in Australia landing a fish, which is very impressive. Um, but I was thinking, sort of rambling around the history of fish. There are all sorts of ways you can start thinking about it. You can think about it in its natural sense. So there's a natural history of fish. There's a knowledge of the. Piscine world, and this is something that I might endeavour to talk about a little in passing. I'm going to talk about one of the the printing history of one of the earliest sort of encyclopedic volumes of uh, of fish published by the uh, Royal Society in the 17th century. We can also think about fish as foodstuffs, which takes us all over the place from fishing to farming to trade to trawling techniques to eating and cooking, dining and taste, from sushi to Rick Stein. This is a global history that runs to the present day with Brexit, fishing waters, sustainability of fishing. And we touched a little bit on this when we looked at the history of whales and the history of sharks. There's also fishermen and the fishing industry and living in Devon we're very much part of of the fishing industry here and and disaster and shipwrecks and accidents uh, there's also a history of poaching and the technique of fish tickling that I was talking about um, along these lines there's also a history of fish and chips the great British seaside delicacy um, and I was doing some reading about World War Two and rationing. And in fact, fish and chips were one of the few foodstuffs that were not rationed during either the First World War or the Second World War in order to keep up morale. We can also think of fishing as a pastime, so not as a way of life, but as a sport from kids out with rocks 
rods, catching guppies in pools, to angling and the history of the Angling Association, to fly fishing, um, rolling flies and gentlemanly pastimes. Where's your favourite place to have fish and chips, Sam Willis? Fremantle. Fremantle? Fremantle, opposite Perth in Western Australia. I've just oh, had the. Uh, I've just come back from Oz, and um, the. It, interestingly enough, they really do fish and chips properly. So you can um, go and get your fish and chips, but there's a choice of eight different types of fish, or you could have lobster, uh, and the chips are delicious, and it's all quite. It's all reasonably priced, and it's just amazingly freshly cooked and not greasy and fatty. Um, so I was um, one of the things I was really surprised at actually was the fact that fish and chip culture that there is a fish and chip culture in Australia. I suppose it's not surprising now I think about it because of the um, the links with uh, with Britain. Uh, in fact, I found this amazing quote here from the 1930s: "What England used to stand for." This is in the 30s, right? So this is what it used to stand for: statesmanship and stability, bowler hats and brollies, afternoon tea, cricket, old school ties, fish and chips, jellied eels, and a weekend at Bognor. <laughs> so I thought it was quite good. Um, but the point is, is that uh, you know, it's it, fish and chips. You did mention the fish and chip trade there. It's become a kind of uh, an image of uh, almost like a patriotic image and certainly quite a chauvinistic one as well of um of britain and that does have a a fascinating history the sort of the social history of fish and chips and it was interesting you saying that they um fish wasn't rationed during the war which i'm not kind of surprised at but i, I also found some really interesting stuff about uh about it being a um about women being involved in the fish and Trip, uh, chip trade um, and it became most noticeable here um, this is kind of going from the assumption that most fish fryers were male um, which as is is incorrect um, and here we are um, and the national fish frying championships they were inaugurated at Olympia in London in 1930 there were 500 entrants competing uh, they were preparing and frying um, a load of mixed fish and Mrs. Bell from Sheffield won the second prize. And the 43 winners of prizes of certificates included six women. The second competition a year later saw 16 women winning awards. So it was certainly not a completely male-dominated domain. And it was also a bit of an art. Um, fish frying is an art. It cannot be learned in a day. There's a famous quote there from the 1920s. So I do think um, the, the spread of fish and chips as a food uh, is very socially and culturally interesting and i'm not talking just around england but also around the world so yes james Fremantle in western australia is my favorite place for fish and chips oh mine is a little closer to home have you ever had dance mm. farm fish and chips yes oh they now they i'm sure they're nothing not a patch on Fremantle, uh, but <laughs> they but you can get them grilled you can get scallops you can get samphire which i love samphire uh with them and you can eat them in the outside and they taste delicious and they're not sort of horribly battered um i my one of my best friends at school used to work in a fish and chip shop in the evenings while he was a schoolboy a man called a man now a boy called dominic how you go which is a terrific name um but he used to come it's quite a dangerous art uh fish and chip frying because he used to come in with sort of burns all over his arms where the fat had sort of spat wow. at him yeah not very good he also got into a slight tussle uh with somebody who had come in and complained about the quality of his fish and chips uh the next day 
uh, we, he got into trouble with the headmaster um, <laughs> over that. So fish and chips are very dangerous, mm. uh, very dangerous pastime in lots of ways. Now, where are you going to? Uh, who's going to start, Sam? Yeah, no, I'm going to go because um, I was quite. I, I thought about our book on the Romans. So we um, we wrote our histories of the unexpected book of the Romans, and it includes a load of different chapters, including chapters on poison, solar power, mm. benches, fattening, feet, inkwells, tattoos, and one on fish. And we talked about. Um, the the Roman uh, fascination with um, salty uh, putrid fish sauce for mm. um, uh, for spicing up their food and it they did this of course because before there was any kind of refrigeration or access to large quantities of ice then fish was preserved by salting pickling and fermenting and that led to a you know particularly noxious i think type of food um and then i was thinking about my one of my favorite places in london which is billingsgate fish market billingsgate itself has a wonderful history i mean if you're ever in london you're ever there very very early in the morning really stupidly early in the morning do go to uh, Billingsgate. It's fascinating. And that itself goes back to the the 16th and the 17th centuries. Uh, Anyway, I was reading something about Billingsgate and also about the Fulton Fish Market, which was the equivalent in Manhattan before it moved. Um, And that became... Uh, uh, big in the 19th century and one of the key things for both Billingsgate and Fulton was the um, arrival of the ice trade Um, and talking about fish actually really does allow you to talk about the history of ice and how and why it was important obviously if you can ice your fish then you can do two things the first thing you can do is you can send your fish further away from the market so it can go from uh, manhattan you know up the coast down the coast or the same with billingsgate but you can also get fish to that market which is caught somewhere else where there isn't a market so this particularly worked in america with uh, fish caught in massachusetts all up the coast from new york up the east coast of america there so they could then catch their fish, put it on a train on ice, and then get it to the Fulton Fish Market where it could be sold. Um, and so you're doing two things. The first thing is you're getting your fish all over the country, and the second is that you're getting fish from all over the country to larger markets. So in the 19th century, you get this huge growth of these massive fish markets. Um, and um, I was just thinking about what I didn't know anything really about the ice trade apart from what I'd seen at the beginning of Frozen, James. Now, with two young yes. daughters, I'm sure you've seen Frozen. Many um, a time. For those of you listening, it's got a really interesting sequence right at the beginning of Frozen. And it, it uh, you know, it doesn't really go on and explore it, which is a shame. Um, but you've got um, wonderful uh, animations of people in uh, Scandinavia, I think Norway, because well, I'm hoping it's Norway, because that's actually where a lot of the ice came from, certainly the ice that was sold in the UK. Um, people sawing blocks of ice and then picking them up. They were turned into cubes, picking up with these giant pincers. Um, they were then dragged across the ice or put on something called an ice train, which was like a, a sort of wooden sledge. And it went from where they were cut all the way down to the port where they were loaded onto ships. Um, it's quite interesting that they were cut for the British ship market, uh, British uh, ice market. They were cut. These blocks of ice were cut in Norway um, before they started taking ice from Norway. They took it from Massachusetts, something called the Wenham Lake Ice Company, um, and that became really, really, really important. A really big deal. It was pure ice. Now the point is, is if you're in the UK, yes, it was quite cold. Um, and they did do a bit of taking ice from lakes and even from Regent's uh, Regent's Canal, Regent's Lake. Um, it's dirty. 
and what you want is fresh pure beautiful ice and um it started with this this whole ice import business started in Wenham, the Wenham Lake Ice Company um and amazingly they had um had a a major shop in the strand in london and as a gimmick they'd put a huge block of ice there um, so uh, visitors could walk by and look at the ice and they'd put a newspaper behind the block of ice to demonstrate how pure it was so you could see through it and you could actually read the newspaper. Uh, but you ended up with um, uh, shops from the Wenham Ice Company all over the country. Um, then it all changes in 1857. You've got a chap called Carlo Gatti. He's the first person to bring ice from Norway to London. And once they managed to get the ice from the lake down to the ships, they were sailed across the North Sea, uh, brought to the Thames, and then they were kept in ice wells, huge circular pits, um, about 30 feet in diameter, 42 feet deep, and uh, in, uh, kept in ice storage. They'd lose about a quarter of the percentage of their weight before they were taken all over the country, um, taken by canal from um, Regent's Canal. And if you're interested in this, then do go to the London Canal Museum because that actually occupies the building where um, the, this ice by Carlo Gatti, the stuff that was imported, was kept, kept in the ice wells, which still exist. So you can get a sense of just how important this ice trade was if you go and visit the London Canal Museum. Museum. So once you've got the ice, then you can have uh, more fish freshly caught, freshly eaten all over the country. And that is a fundamentally important requirement to the spread of fish and chips. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Sam Willis, that is extraordinary. And it connects very well with with a book I was reading. Uh, this week. Have you ever read uh, Mark Kalansky's Cod, a biography of a fish that changed the world? I've uh, flicked through it. Which I've came out in 1997. Together. I was... Yeah, old now. It, it, it's really quite old, but it, it's extraordinary because it, it covers very similar sort of territory to what you've just been talking about from the perspective of Cod. And what's amazing about it, I think, is it it's genius because it's a, it's a take on 
global history from the perspective of one fish. And I love it because it's punctuated throughout with various sort of cod recipes that show how important this fish was just to everyday life. And I'm going to talk in a little bit about you know, some of those recipes, but it connects really well with what you were saying. Um, a lot of it is about it is about you know global history that is related to trade, that is related to expeditions, that is related to political and military history and but it starts at the beginning and this this is the 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 sentence that ends the first chapter the problem with the people of petty harbor is that they are on the wrong end of a thousand year fishing spree and basically it starts at the beginning with a description of the fishing community in petty harbor which is in newfoundland in canada and it's at a point where uh, the Canadian government have basically banned cod fishing because the stocks are just being so overfished. So there is a moratorium on this. And so it's an interview with the uh, couple of fishermen who are sort of struggling and finding that they're just not, you know, able to fish and make a living out of this. And then it sort of reels back to late 1400s when the explorer John Cabot basically describes these just these bubbling waters in Newfoundland Bay and the idea that it was just teeming with fish, so much so that you could just pull a basket through the water and you would end up with a, a basket full of fish. And the book then is all about how have we got to where we got now. And what's fascinating is that it, it covers the history of cod all the way back to the vikings the basques so it's interesting what you were saying about about ice and ice being used to keep fish frozen um one of the other techniques that was used certainly back in the sort of viking age and through the sort of you know medieval basques was the use of salt so salting fish codfish and of course this is still a very popular delicacy in the uh in somewhere like portugal in spain um and the idea of how you cook um a a fish that has basically been stored in masses and masses of salt it's quite delicious when done well but absolutely god awful uh, when it's done poorly um it's also there are other chapters that look at the way in which it links to american history so during the american war of independence in the 1770s a topic i know you know tons about sam and have actually written on um you know some of the sort of disputes that are happening are over claiming whose right it was to fish particular waters um there's then it goes then into we've got sort of later on where looking at the significance of the cod industry in iceland and cod wars fought against britain uh it then looks at the the figure of clarence birdseye you're probably all very familiar with birdseye fish fingers um, this was a technique developed in the 1920s. Uh, Clarence Birdseye and his 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 revolutionary techniques of filleting and freezing fish. Absolutely incredible. Um, one of the things that I think is extraordinary about the about the cod, though, and this comes through the book, and particularly in the one of the final chapters where he looks at all of the different kinds of recipes, is that 
basically every single bit of the cod was eaten. Nothing was wasted at all. Think of it rather like the way in which people sort of devour a pig and use every sort of portion of it. Even the even the whiskers of a of a pig are used in in paintbrushes and that kind of thing. And I'll just read you a little bit here from that chapter. There is almost no waste to a cod. The head is more flavourable than the body. The roe is eaten, fresh or smoked. The Japanese still eat colt milk. Stomachs, tripe and livers are all eaten and the liver oil is highly valued for its vitamins. Icelanders stuff cod stomachs with cod liver oil and boil them until tender and eat them like sausages. This dish is also made in the Scottish Highlands where its dubious popularity is not helped by the local names liver muggy or crappin muggy. Cod tripe is eaten in the Mediterranean. The skin is either eaten or cured as leather. Until the 20th century, Icelanders softened the bones in sour milk and ate them too. And one of the most extraordinary things that I came across in this, the section at the end, which has over recipes from over 600 years, it's titled A Cook's Tale, uh, Six Centuries of Cod Recipes. He looks at the correct way to flush a cod, um, spare parts, chowder, the diaspora of the Western West Indian cure, a great French disguise, balls, um, Basque cooking, uh, how to cook a large cod. But there's a section on how to eat cod's head. And it starts with a quote from Henry David Thoreau uh, from Cape Cod in 1851. And it's titled The Bad News at Walden Pond. It is rumoured that in the fall, the cows here are sometimes fed cod's head, the godlike part of the cod, which, like the human head, is curiously and wonderfully made. Forsooth has but little less brain in it coming to such an end to be crunched by cows. I felt my own skull crack with sympathy. What if the heads of men were to be cut off to feed the cows of a superior order of beings who inhabit the islands in either way? Away goes your fine brain, the house of thought and instinct, to swell the cud of a ruminant animal. However, an inhabitant assured me that they did not make a practice of feeding cows on cod's heads. The cows merely would eat them sometimes. And so it goes on with all sorts of recipes of how to cook fried cod head. Um, um, it's got Icelandic recipes on them. And then in 1914 there's a famous Icelandic banker and I hope I get his his name uh, pronounced correctly here uh, Trygvi Gunnarsson uh, who is uh, a prominent Icelandic banker uh, who did a study where he looked at the economics of eating cod's heads and and I quote he said the food value was not worth the cost of production and demonstrated this in a mathematical formula that even calculated eating time the director of the national library responded with a treatise on the social values of eating cod heads so there is in fact a, a debate about whether people should or should not eat dried codhead in Iceland. So there we are. I warmly, <laughs> warmly recommend you reading Mark Kalansky's uh, History of Cod. Uh, extraordinary sort of global history from a simple fish. 
Wonderful stuff. Um, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about a chap called Edwin Rist now. Um, now, this is to do with fly fishing and fly tying. So uh, if you are not a fly fisherman, um, I doubt that many of you are, but some of you might be. Um, you have a little hook, and the idea is is you, you tie um, feathers, fur, speciality kind of threads around it to make it resemble... Uh, an insect this is what you do for uh, trout fishing and grayling fishing particularly um, but you have more elaborate things as well for uh, to create lures for salmon um, now this requires you to have access to very very colorful and very very beautiful feathers uh, Edwin Rist is a really interesting chap right he was born in 1989 he was a very talented flautist um, and uh, that is a kind of a by-the-by fact, but it, it is relevant because he ended up, he wanted to uh, get himself a new flute. He didn't have any money. But um, he'd also become very, very interested in fly tying, but not just normal fly tying. He became interested in the history of fly tying. So you've got these people who were, who were tying flies. If you have a very successful one, then you wrote it down as a recipe in the Victorian period. So there are these, um, they're called recipes of flies. And it shows you the you know it describes exactly how to do it what kind of fur from what kind of animal to put on it what feathers from what kind of animal and how to attach it they're very very beautiful things and it means that you have patterns of flies which are by their very nature historic so you have people making modern ones but you have ones that date back really a very long way indeed um, now once you combine uh, something like this with the idea of the passing of time you get extinct species and uh, what happened was that Edwin Rist decided that he wanted to start recreating Victorian fly patterns for uh, salmon. But he couldn't do that because many of the species that were required are either extinct or so rare as to be un un unobtainable. So he took the next logical step as far as he saw it, and um, he posed as a student and went to the Natural History Museum located at Tring. This is one of the most important collections of um, bird specimens um, in the world. It houses 95% of all known bird species. There are about 750,000 examples. And he broke in and he stole what he needed to... Um, have to tie the flies required to recreate these famous Victorian patterns and then he sold them and he sold them so that he could buy himself um, a flute which allowed him to carry on um, he very 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 talented flautist indeed now um, it, it, there were the 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 robbery was discovered it took the uh, detectives a while to work out what what had actually gone on um, but, I mean, among the things he stole um, are examples of birds of paradise. Um, most extraordinary birds, brilliant, uh, a red back, a white breast, these beautiful long tail feathers at the end of which are two kind of coin-shaped emerald feathers. Edwin Rist stole 37 of them. Um, and he was eventually uh, tracked down where the detective um, kind of had a, a, a sense, perhaps, of what was going on and looked at tie-flying forums. And suddenly these most magnificent um, 
salmon tie, uh, salmon flies were suddenly available to purchase and they had never not been available to purchase for a very, very long time indeed. Um, he was arrested. Uh, he was found to have Asperger's syndrome, so he was not put uh, put into prison. Um, he's, and he's actually uh, out and about now and, um, and does make YouTube videos about his time as a feather thief. Um, so it's a story, James, which links the Victorian art of fly tying it also to do with uh, collections. I mean, put it this way, some of, the, some of the birds he stole were collected by someone called Alfred Russell Wallace and he was a great contemporary of Darwin. He did a huge amount of um, exploring in the 19th century. Um, and uh, collecting a, a staggering number of species from what was then the Dutch East Indies, but what we now know as Indonesia, as he collects more than 100,000 insect, bird and animal specimens. And many of these are subsequently gifted to uh, this uh, to, the, to the museum, which ends up in Tring. Um, and uh, Rist stole 299 of them. Um, so, yeah, a story which connects the Victoria, lost Victorian art of fly tying, extinct birds, um, 19th century people exploring the world and trying to understand it. I mean, I should say, actually, that Alfred Russell Wallace, once he'd collected all of these species, he writes a paper which inspires Darwin to write on the origin of species. So uh, it's hugely important and ties together all of these remarkable different aspects of history. All from the history of fly tying. Yep. Amazing, Sam. Amazing, Sam. Mm. I have a similar convoluted tale here. Um, I'm going to link Samuel Pepys, the Royal Society, and Sir Isaac Newton's Principia, um, which is his big sort of nat philosophy of natural philosophy, uh, Mathematica, uh, the mathematical principles of natural philosophy. Um, I'm going to link all of that up with fish. <laughs> Um, and the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to link it to the publication of a book called The History of Fishes, which was published in Latin, De Historia Piscium, uh, by Willoughby and Ray, which those of you who know your horrible histories um, will know that this was the book that almost stopped Sir Isaac Newton's most important uh, work on his laws of motion and his law of universal gravitation being published, as it was on the 5th of July, 1687. Um, those of you who have access to YouTube, Google uh, the Royal Society and Horrible Histories and you will discover the most hilarious sketch there, which has Samuel Pepys, famed diarist, sitting at his desk, sort of more or less sort of narrating and writing down everything that was happening to him. Um, and uh, Newton comes along and is told that basically his book isn't going to be able to be um, to be to be published because they have published this incredibly expensive uh, book uh, on the history of fish, uh, which is actually really interesting in itself. And it's what I'm going to talk about. The reason that it's so expensive is really down to the nature of the study of fish itself, and particularly the very lavish and expensive illustrations that were put into it. Now, John Ray, who was a fellow of the Royal Society, and Francis Willoughby, another fellow of the Royal Society, um, we're talking here sort of second half of the of the 17th century. Um, they, before they went on a grand tour of Europe, they agreed that they were basically going to 
reform the study of natural history. So they were interested in the study of plants, the animal kingdom, and here they included birds and insects, and importantly for what we're what I'm going on to say, uh, fishes. So they go out, um, tour around Europe. They do all sorts of experiments. They get all sorts of illustrations. They record dissections. They purchase books. They purchase pictures, and they return to England in 1666. And during the winter of that year, they start working on tables of animals and plants. And what we have coming out of this is a series of publications, illustrations on ornithology, and also the um, production of this history of fish. Now, as members of the Royal Society, which is basically a very early sort of science society begun in the 17th century, um, they decide that they are going to try and publish it through the Royal Society. And what happens is they publish this in two parts, in two volumes. And the first volume is basically all of the words, and the second volume is lavish illustrations and this is what sort of makes it so expensive both of these parts were published separately but they were frequently bound together now what's interesting is how they manage to fund this and one of the ways that they manage to do it is by subscriptions from all of the members of the royal society so these are people who belong to the royal society and pay for particular volumes so it's a sort of subscription form of publication and one of the problems with the illustrations is that there are an extraordinary number of them so they start by getting all these illustrations made and then they show them to fellows of the Royal Society who start pulling them apart and critiquing them, saying that, no, we need this illustration here, we need that illustration there. And then they go through a series of trying to get people to subscribe to individual subs individual illustrations uh, that they can have their name put onto. So Samuel Pepys pays to have his name associated with quite a number of them. And by about 1685 they have raised the sum of 121 guineas from 42 individuals they've had uh, 60 guineas from peeps um, and various other people have paid sort of two guineas each but this isn't enough money um, it isn't enough money because of the way in which these lavish illustrations are produced they involved more than 18 artists to engrave the illustration, some of them charging quite a lot of money uh, in order to do it. Uh, there's one particular individual, um, who, uh, an artist called Moll, who charges for a number of fishes, including four pounds for a particular copper plate uh, example and so it goes on there are various sort of other other costs that come in here and the full cost is about 360 pounds which is an extraordinary amount of money so much so that the royal society almost go bankrupt um, they try and sell the book um, but the book basically you know it, it flounders it's a real flop um, and what it does is it forces them to withdraw 
uh, finances for the publication of Newton's Principia, uh, which, as I said already, is one of the foundational, I mean, we know this with hindsight, one of the foundational works in the history of science. Now, of course, this is a time of very sort of early science, so they don't actually know the significance of it at the time. Um, but um, Edmund Haley, um, who's clerk of the Royal Society, steps in. Uh, although Newton's publication is delayed, he Haley um, raises funds to enable them to publish uh, the work uh, and actually ends up paying <laughs> quite a bit of it uh, from his own pocket. And eventually we see... Uh, it being published in 1687. But if you want to have a look at this Historia Piscium, um, go to the Royal Society's website and have a look at their digital images because it is photographed in it, all its glory. I and mean, the reason that it cost so much money and the fact that it was so much... Um, that it was such a flop doesn't take away from the staggering beauty of some of these illustrations. One of my favourite is this illustration of a flying fish. So there we are, Sam. There's Samuel Pepys, uh, Isaac Newton uh, and the history of science, all related to uh, the history of fish and expensive books. Wonderful stuff, wonderful stuff. And I also rather feel we have barely scratched the surface of the history of fish. You could probably do an entire podcast series on the history yes. of fish, um, which I think we'd get a little bored of. However, it was interesting for one episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. Come back and listen to us again. I think we're going to have the history of frailty. Or stripes. We're doing stripes. stripes is coming. Stripes is coming next, and I think we're going to do frailty after that. It's a wonderful yes. idea. Um, do please follow me on social media. If you want to uh, look at my fishing pictures, you can find them on Instagram at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you're interested in fish and interested in the sea and interested in maritime history, as you should all be, please, please listen to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. And if you'd like to follow me on social media, I'm on Twitter at James Daybell. Uh, the podcast is at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram and Facebook and we have a website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, where you can see our entire back catalogue and, indeed, uh, by signed copies of our books. Also, if you'd like to support the way in which we are changing the way in which people think about the past, head over to patreon.com and anything that you could do to support us would be very much appreciated. Meanwhile, uh, take care and happy fishing. <laughs> happy fishing, guys. Tight lines, you say. Cheerio. <laughs> Bye. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.